Hey, hey, no talking. First John chapter 3. I hope that's how the recording starts off on the internet, so somebody just hears me yelling at somebody to start off and be like, what is wrong with this church? First John chapter 3, verse 1. I, I just kept coming back to this verse uh, when I was thinking about, okay, I knew I was teaching. Uh, we had some time with the students away in Michigan uh, just for, to allow God to speak to us, and it was, it was an awesome time. And I, I just cannot get away from this verse. Um, and so we're going to kind of use this as a, as a starting point. It says in 1 John 3, chapter 1, and I really invite you to, if, if you don't have a Bible, to, to find one around you, uh, because I'm not putting it on the screen. You're welcome. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. I mean, let me read that one more time. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us. That's not uh, just kind of meeting out love, but he's, he's pouring it out on us, that we should be called the children of God. And I, I, I kept reflecting on this passage, and, and normally what I like to do is to go uh, to, to a, like a chunk of scripture and just kind of walk through each part of it. Um, I find that's a, that's a better way for me to do it, but I, as I kept reflecting on this passage, I kept coming back to the, the love of God, and how big and how vast that is in our lives. And, and I, I just kind of wanted to, to do something a little different today. Instead of walking through a particular passage of Scripture, I kind of wanted to take a, take a big step back and take more of a global view um, to see how God is, is telling the story of His love throughout uh, the whole Bible. So we're going to read all of the Bible today, um, starting over here. It's going to be awesome. Um, but I find that sometimes it's, it's helpful um, to talk about things in these sort of bigger terms. And so uh, we're going to talk about the love of God today, and that kind of requires us uh, to, to uh, go through a few little caveats here. The first thing is, when I talk about something as big as the love of God, um, you, you're going to realize very quickly that I can't hit everything on it, right? Uh, unless you guys really do want to stay here till like, you know, next week. Uh, we're not going to be able to talk about all of it. And so I, I kind of like to think of it like this. Um, if you were to ask me what time it is, um, I, you would probably say the answer that is, that is appropriate for where you are. So if you ask me what time it is right now, I'd say, well, it's, it's 1040. Um, and, and that's what time it is here. But if you were to say that it's 740, um, somebody would say, well, no, it's not. Well, actually, it is. It is somewhere, right? It may not be 10 or 740 here, but it is in California, right? And so uh, when talking about the love of God, uh, I'm going to hit a couple time zones, but I can't hit all of them. And so if you walk out of here saying, well, he didn't say anything about that, well, yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean it's any less true. And so uh, we're going to talk about something that's kind of big and kind of hard to get a, a, a grasp around. But I find that God, um, sometimes it's, it's helpful for us to take a step back. And so I want to look at the story that, that we're telling here. Uh, the story about Jesus, about his love, his redemption for us. And, and I find that sometimes it's just helpful to tell the whole story. Now I've had times in my life where people did not tell me the whole story. Um, I remember one time very vividly, and the students have heard me say this, so they're, they, they're going to be like, I've heard this one before. Uh, but literally, uh, my friend invited me to this church thing. It was like a Wednesday night. And so we go to the church, and it, it turns out it's like this play. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. It's not like normal church. I wasn't a Christian then, so um, I'm like, that's, that's good. Uh, so we, it, they start this play, and I'm like, okay, let's, you know, trying to figure out what happens. Then all of a sudden, like, the characters, like, mom and dad are talking, and dad's like, I'm going to go out to the store, and dad leaves to go to the store, and he dies in a terrible car crash. 
And then it's like, like devil, like looks like Darth Maul, like appears from behind the curtain and like rips this guy and takes him to hell as he's screaming. Now, I didn't know the Lord then. And at the end of this, they said, does anybody want to accept Jesus so that doesn't happen to them? I'm just saying, right? Now, that, that sort of, and so I had this moment of like, okay, I got to get everything right. I got to start living right. I got to start doing all these things. And uh, that lasted for about two days. And then I went back to my middle school and started doing the same things I'd been doing. Um, and it's not, it's not that that wasn't true, okay? That I have sin in my life. And if, if, if that wasn't covered by, by Jesus' love, then yeah, I mean, that might be a, a reality that I face. But was it the whole truth? Um, I'm not quite sure. And so uh, I find that when telling the whole story, it's helpful to begin at the beginning. And so we're going to go over to Genesis chapter 1. That's to the left, all the way to the left. I usually encourage the use of the table of contents, but I hope you know where that one is. Genesis chapter 1. I'll let you guys get there. says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And so the Bible starts off with this poem. It's not some scientific account of how the world was made. It's a poem, and there are refrains. And the Lord saw that it was good. On the first day, he separated light from darkness. He, he separated land from sea. And so the first time, the first picture that we have of this God, he is speaking worlds into existence with his word. Now this would have come directly in the face of other uh, sort of primordial myths about how the world was created. Other cultures that existed around the time that this was, was sort of crafted would have said that their God subdued the chaos, that he somehow uh, was stronger than the other gods and, and thus was able to create the world, that we're, the world was created out of conflict. But look what it says in Genesis. It says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. That, that phrase, the deep, can also be uh, connote something like chaos. But there's no struggle here. There's no battle for, for supremacy. God speaks and light runs to its place. God speaks, and the sea and the land are separated. And so we see that God begins to create this world. He creates it, and, and we see as he gets to sort of creating creatures, that this world is endowed with the ability to create. So he creates, like, cows, and he says, hey, cows, go make some more cows. And you know what? They can do it. And so God creates this, this abundant, bountiful world. Now scroll down to verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And so God's creating. He's creating all these things. He's like, he's like you think that's good? And he keeps saying, after everything he makes, he's like, oh, it's good. And he's like, wait, 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 I got one more for you. In verse 26, he creates man. He creates man in his image. And now I want you to notice a couple things about basically the way that God formulates us. The first thing is God's not like uh, the Greek gods that kind of, you know, they may be supreme, but they kind of are far off. That God is close. He is near. If you read Genesis 2, we see that there's a garden and that God is present in the garden. And he is with the people. I encourage you to read that at some point. But there is proximity. The second thing is that God, like the world wasn't created and then just made to be this static place. God gives the people that he creates some things to do, right? He says, hey, why don't you go ahead, you can tend the earth. You, you uh, subdue the earth. You rule it. You're, you're in charge of my creation. You're the crown jewel of it. He says, rule over the fish and the birds and all that stuff. And he says, that is your job. And so, at the beginning, there's work. Some of you guys are picturing heaven, you're like, all right, I'm going to sit around and eat cookies all day. Um, Maybe not. Maybe not. Um, But God gives them a task, something to do. He tells them to increase in number. And so, just like the rest of the world was was endowed with the sort of ability to create more, God tells man and woman, he says, you can create more. And it's interesting that the first sort of... um, one of the first things that we see in Genesis, if you meet Abram, in Genesis chapter 12, what's wrong with Abram and Sarah? What can't they do? They can't have a child, right? And so one of the first things that God overcomes is this sort of barrenness. But he invites them. The third thing he tells them to do is to eat their vegetables. You notice, if you read later in Genesis, God sort of gets fed up with God, man, and he's like, you know, they're living a little too long for my taste. Why don't you guys go ahead and eat meat? All the vegetarians rejoice. But I want you to see, in verse 31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was, what's that word? How good was it, though? Very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And so, like, I I don't know if you guys have done this, but, like, you, you make something, and then you get that moment where you get to kind of step back and look at it. Like, I made these shelves at our house, and they are so crooked. Like, because I can't build things. But they stand upright. And I tell you, I made them, and I got done with them, and I took my step back, and they're all leaning off to the side, and I said, that's right. I have made that. And so even if it's not very good, like for, in my case, like it's still like it's something I, I made. And, and notice God, he, he sort of at the end of his work, before he rests, he takes a step back and he says, see that? That's pretty good. And, and he, he looks at it, and he admires it. Now, uh, for some of us, we've forgotten who we are a little bit. You are made in the image of God. You're constantly being told you're not good enough, that you're not, um, girls, you're not good-looking enough. You see the pictures in the magazine that they Photoshop like crazy. Um, I wish they'd do that for me. Um, Guys, you see maybe somebody who earns more than you do. You see somebody who, who seems to have a better relationship with their family. Or maybe you've been through divorce. Maybe you're, you're a single parent. And you're always just feeling inadequate. And Genesis speaks into that situation. He says, you are made in my image. 
God says that you are mine, that you are very good. And God speaks into that situation. And so if you, if you feel that way, think about the things that we've done with the image of God. We've, we've, we've taken that and we've fractured it. But God says that you are made in my image. One thing I want us to see about how creation communicates God's love to us is that creation is an act of grace. Now, uh, I don't think God needed us. That may shock some of you, um, but we're not the point of all of this. God is. And he created us for his pleasure and his glory. I don't think he needed us. Um, maybe you think about it this way. If, uh, how many of you guys are parents? Yeah, I'm not. So I'll talk to you about your kids, tell you how to raise them. <laughs> think about it this way. Like, some of you guys have, have made the decision to have children. Um, think about it. If you... If you were deciding to have children, and, and somebody told you, and they were like a prophet, they could see the future, and they're like, look, that child that you create is going to put you through hell. You're like, yeah. All of you guys are like, huh? They're going to break your heart. They're going to do things to betray you that you cannot imagine. Living with them is going to be so very difficult. And the question would become, would you do it? And so God, um, who we've seen, he, he speaks worlds into existence with just a word. He says, let there be light, and there's light. Um, seems to know a little bit about what's going on. And so we're going to look at, the, at the, the fracture, the fall, here in Genesis 3 in just a moment. But those of you who are familiar with your Bibles, you know that it doesn't take long for it to go wrong, right? I don't know that God was surprised by this. I don't know that he was shocked. Um, Two minutes before we started church today, my stupid guitar pedal stopped working. Now, that was a surprise to me, a little annoying, kind of frazzled me. Um, I don't think that's what happened to God. I don't think God sort of drives the ambulance into the situation and says, okay, how can we fix this? God probably knew it was coming. And so creation becomes this incredible act of grace. He's going to make you and me, and we're going to betray him constantly? Yeah, let's do it anyway, because my love is big enough. And so I would say that creation is an act of grace. But also see that God's love is an incredible risk. That if we want to love like God loves, if we want to be like him, that he risks everything. And we're going to see that fleshed out a little more here in a minute. All right, now we're going to jump over to Genesis chapter 3. We're just going to look at a couple verses here. I don't have time to spend uh, time on original sin or all these other sorts of really interesting things that are going on here. But... Adam disobeys, disobeys God. Now, I want you to notice something about the garden. God says, here's, here's everything that I've made. Enjoy it. Tend it. Work it. Name the animals. He gives them all this permission. Tells them not to do what? One thing. Now, we think of God as just like, well, he's got all these rules, and he wants me to live this way and all this. One thing he tells them not to do. The garden is a place of permission. God is a God of permission, not prohibition. He says, I give you everything that I have made to enjoy, uh, to give me glory and honor. Just, just stay away from this. And, you know, obviously, knowing yourself, knowing myself, uh, we can't stay away from that. But in Genesis chapter 3, the fracture, this good world that God had created, is introduced to us. We see kind of where it all has gone wrong. And we see that there's this condition that is begun here. Um, verse 9, God asks, where are you? Again, we've kind of already covered that God 
probably knows where Adam and Eve are. But he says, where are you? And then some, some people have interpreted, you know, after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, that he says, where are you? Kind of like, well, where'd that get you? Verse 15. We see that even in the midst of Adam and Eve's betrayal, that God is promising redemption. And this, this for uh, many scholars, is viewed as the first prophecy about Jesus in, in the whole Bible. Genesis 3, 15. It says that um, he will crush the head of the serpent. And scholars have, have sort of taken that to mean, yeah, like even in the midst of this, that, that God is promising that, that there will be redemption. There will be one who will come. And we're going to see what he looks like later. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Somebody's just betrayed you, stabbed you in the back. You taking care of them? You saying, oh, wait, hold on. Before you go, let me sew you this, this nice little sweater here. I don't think so. It's not how we love, right? You say, go ahead, get out of here. Like, I don't need you. I don't need you in my life. But God has just been betrayed. He's just been kind of stabbed in the back in a very real way. And he's saying, look, like, you're going to need this. I'm going to take care of you. And so in Genesis 3, we see that this, this condition of sin is introduced into the world. And we see it so clearly these days. Like, we see that there is sin in the world. Uh, you know, one of the funniest things to me is when people say that, oh, there's, there's not bad people. No, there's, there's people that do crazy things. And it begins this drama of, of, of the world unfolding. And God's going to keep showing us his love. Now, um, in Genesis 6, verses 6 and 7, I just want to point this out. Um, it says, uh, actually, I want you to turn over there, if you would. We're going to get out of Genesis here in just a second. It says that the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Now, we think that God doesn't, like, isn't affected by us. But as, as a parent, those of you guys who have children, like, do you just create and then say, okay, like, whatever they do is fine. Like, it doesn't hurt my feelings. Um, again, love and creation is an incredible risk. God, God risked everything. And he, in order to truly love, has to be sympathetic in some ways to the, to the things that we go through and the things that we do to him. And so God opens himself up, even though he is all-powerful, even though he is all-knowing, he opens himself up to be hurt by the likes of you and me. And so it says in Genesis 6, it's one of the most uh, human depictions of God that we have in the whole Bible says that he's sorry that he made them. All right, so we have, we have creation. We have the fall. Now, I was watching, I was watching a movie yesterday, and uh, let me just tell you, this movie is awesome. All you guys are going to love it. Um, you know, it's, it, it involves like a guy who lives in a big house. He's kind of a dark, brooding hero. He sacrifices everything that he loves, or everything for the thing that he loves. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah? What is it? The Dark Knight? Yeah. No, it's a notebook, bro. You ever seen the notebook? Who said the dark night? You seen the notebook? No? Oh, man. That's what I was talking about. Now, it's really a good movie. I mean, like, most chick flicks, like, are the same plot. Like, I'm like, we, we, we know. We know they end up together. This one's actually okay. Courtney accused me of crying. I'm not sure. Now, in the notebook... Um, we see the sort of the, the love unfold between these two very young people uh, in, in the 30s. 
And you see how their life progresses. But um, the, the, the story kind of unfolds in two different eras. Because you're, you're watching what's happening in the 30s, and then you're watching what's happening like 60 years down the road, road when they're older. And at the, in the later scene, later when they're older, um, the woman has Alzheimer's. And what the guy does is he just goes to her in the nursing home every day, and he reads the story of his love to her. And, and, and he reads it hoping, hoping that she would remember. And, and so often she's hearing the story of her life and just kind of like, oh, this is such a nice story. I like this story. But it's her. And he's trying to remind her that this is, this is what happened. This is how we loved one another. And so we, we see that. God kind of does this with us. It's, it's, it's so beautiful and it's so awesome. But we've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten that we were made in God's image. We've forgotten that he, he endowed us with his uh, ability to create and to rule. And he's reminding us. And, and that's what we see in the Old Testament is that God is reminding us of his faithfulness. He's reading the story over and over again. And we see it in Exodus um, when God takes the people out of slavery. He's reminding them, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. He's reminding them. He's saying, this is who you are. You're not, not what everybody says about you. This is who you are. And so Noah reads to Allie. He reads to her every day. And he, and he, and he even says, like, he'll go get his medicine. The nurses all know him. And he, and he just says, today's the day. And so we, we see that the fall sort of breaks this, this beautiful harmony, this peace that God has created. And now God has promised that he's going to do something about it. And so this is where we're going to turn. We're going to make a big jump over to John chapter 1. If you haven't seen The Notebook, especially you guys, manly movie. John chapter 1. All right, in verse 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The beginning was what? So what did God do to create the world? Speaks, speaks. And now uh, John is reminding us of that Word that he has spoken. Now look down at verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This is what we call the incarnation. That, that God comes down from heaven in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that Word which created worlds, that Word which spoke worlds into existence, now walks among us. And, and it's no longer this sort of abstract thing, but it's, it's flesh, it's bone. That Jesus comes to us. Now, this, this is, like, so crazy to me. And this is the part I think we just kind of gloss over. Like, Christmas is crazy. Like, you guys understand that? Like, this is not the story that you would make up. Like, somebody had to change Jesus' diapers. You guys aware of that? Like, I can just picture Joseph. Like, you know, Jesus did his little thing. You know, little baby Jesus. Eight pounds, six ounce. And... He goes in there, and he's like, you know, he's, he's doing the diaper thing, whatever they had, the, the sheep cloth, you know, and he's like, he opens it up, and he's like, how 
like, how could something from the depths of hell come out of this child from heaven? And then he has a thought. He's like, hey, Mary, this ain't my child, so why don't you come over here and take care of this? <laughs> Somebody had to change Jesus' diapers. Now, uh, the other thing I think about, like, like your pastor, Craig Casey, one of the most integrous men I've ever met in my life, one of the most selfless men I've ever met in my life, if he started saying he was God, I would be the first one to take him down to the little New Jersey psychiatry place that looks like something out of the dark night and say, all right, Craig, uh, here's your new home. Um, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus claims to be God. Now, when I, when I was younger, I would let my little brother hang out with me and my friends. Like, he would come and he would hang out. And I wanted to be cool. Um, I, I, it was before I realized that wasn't going to be possible. Um, and so I would, you know, I would say things like, like that weren't quite true, that maybe were an extension of the truth, um, just a little bit of a stretch. And then the problem is when you let your little brother who's around you hang out, his first word is, uh, no, no, you didn't. No, it's not. And I'm like, shut up. I will, I, will, I will end you. In love, in love. Now, James, the brother of Jesus, like Jesus is, is basically saying that he's God, and James is like, yep. That's about right. Like, this isn't the story that you would make up. Like, if you were, like, the brother of Jesus, like, it, w- it would really stink because Mary would always be like, hey, James, why can't you be more like your brother? <laughs> Listen, Mom, you're causing me to stumble. So, the incarnation, God coming to this earth, is one of the craziest things uh, that we could ever imagine. We read the passage from John for communion. Like, he didn't come as a king. He didn't come as some conquering hero. He came to serve. He came and he washed the feet of the disciples. He hung out with the outcasts and the lowly. He's showing us what God looks like. And what God looks like is somebody who cares about the least of these. And so we begin to see how God is going to put it all back together again. Look at verse 10 in John 1. It says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Jesus comes. He comes to his own. He's saying, look, this is who you are, but we don't really see it. We reject him. Now, go back to, to the notebook. There's, there's, a, there's a scene in the movie. It's actually pretty sad. I might have been crying. I'm not going to lie. Noah is reading to Allie, and he has, she has this moment of clarity. She has this moment where she sees. She's like, yeah, yeah, I remember this story. This is my story. She has this moment where she sees him for who he is, and it's like this, this, this grand moment of elation. But then, like, like Alzheimer's does, my dad worked in an Alzheimer's wing for a while. I, I've seen how it, how it devastates. In an instant, she clicks out, and she forgets what was going on. And, and this, like, this moment of, of, of joy and this moment of, of remembrance becomes this moment of terror for her because she doesn't know who Noah is. And she's like, who is this? Help me, help me. And Noah sits there, and he, and he just weeps, and he cries, because, because the worst thing about Alzheimer's is, is sort of the way that you reject the ones that you love, that you forget the ones who love you the most. And so John 1, chapter 10, or excuse me, verse 10, Jesus comes to his own. He's reminding us, he's reading us the story, and we reject him. I want to read just a, a couple of passages about what Christ's coming uh, means for us. I'm just going to kind of skip over these. You guys can write them down if you want the, the references. 
Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. He was made like us in every way. He was tempted. Um, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, he's able to sympathize with our weakness. It's interesting, C.S. Lewis writes that the only, only man who ever really knows what temptation is fully like is Jesus, because he's the only one who, who resisted to the end. He says somebody who gives in to temptation doesn't really know what temptation is, but somebody who resists is the one who knows what temptation is. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, he became poor for our sake that we might be rich. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, Though he was God, he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ comes into the world to show, to show us that the world that God made is good, and that it's still good. Him taking on flesh and blood um, cuts out all the stuff, all the, the conjecture about who God is, and, and Jesus says, no, if you want to you see what God looks like, he says this in John so often, I only do what I see the Father in heaven doing. And so Jesus trades his glory. In John chapter 17, he prays. He says, God, restore me to the glory that I had before the beginning of the world. He trades that glory that was so rightfully his in order to come for us. Like the, the incarnation is crazy. I mean, God in the flesh. And he reminds us that the world that I made and called good is still good. But the problem is, there's still sin. Jesus coming into the world doesn't negate the sin that's going on. And so, as we've touched on, sin is this condition that seems to, be, to keep repeating itself. And so what is God going to do about this? Because God has promised that he will punish sin. Right? Like, God, God doesn't say, okay, like, everybody, you get a get-out-of-jail-free card, it's all good, we're cool, we'll hang out later. Like, no, Jesus comes, and the reason that he was rejected is because he is the, the exact opposite of sinful man. He is the embodiment of God's truth and grace. And when we see that, we just get a little annoyed. You know, anybody ever been around somebody that has really good habits? You know what I mean? Like, like somebody that's like a vegan? Somebody who doesn't eat, like, bad things, and you're like, why do you do that? Like, you, you almost want to try to get them, like, hey, you want to eat some cheese later? <laughs> we'll have a little fondue party, right? We'll eat some cheese, it'll be great. Like, you just want them to be on your level. We see Jesus in his perfection, and the Pharisees hated this guy. They hated him because he was everything that they weren't. We still have this problem of sin, and how is God going to address this? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So God shows us his love through creation. He shows us his love and the fact that he came. He's the God who came for us. And we see in verse 21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so God, in order to deal with this sin issue, says, you know what I'm going to do? Because I love you so much, because my love is so great, I'm going to sacrifice the one thing that is most important to me. Now, those of you who have children, I ask you, if, if, you, if somebody came and said to you that, um, your child would betray you, would, would stab you in the back, would do all these things, would you still do it? Now, think about it this way. If I asked you, if, if, somebody's, if you were going to adopt a child, and you were going to say, take these, these kids as your own, and somebody, you know, another future seer, somebody from the future, came to you and said, look, here's what's going to happen. You have a kid already. If you adopt this child, if you take them into your home, it's going to cost you the life of the kid that is your own flesh and blood. 
would you do it? Is your love that great? But God knew. God created us. He, he put up with us. And he knew that eventually it was going to have to come to a head. And that Jesus Christ was the only answer. And so he sacrifices the thing that he loves the most. Now, don't, don't mistake. God, God doesn't just send Jesus to the wolves and say, Okay, like, let me know when you get back to heaven. It'll be cool. We'll have a party. God doesn't do that. God suffers with Christ. He's, he's intimately present with Christ. And in fact, the only moment where he can't be present with Christ is when Christ becomes sin for us. Psalm 22 is what's quoted by Jesus on the cross, and he yells out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Is basically what he's saying. And so Jesus, at the moment of his greatest need, God can't be there for him. I want to read you a quote. Um, Jürgen Moltmann, he says, To understand what happened between Jesus and his God and Father on the cross, it is necessary to talk in Trinitarian terms. The Son suffers dying. The Father suffers the death of the Son. The grief of the Father here is just as important as the death of the Son. The fatherlessness of the Son is matched by the sonlessness of the Father. And if God has constituted himself as the Father of Jesus Christ, then he also suffers the death of his fatherhood and the death of the Son. Now, all that is saying is that, fathers, you know this. Like, if your son or your daughter was killed, like, are you just going to passively be like, oh, that's, that's terrible? No, you're going to grieve. You're going to wish that you could do everything in your power to stop it. And you know what? God had the power. Jesus even says, like, look, you have no power over me. If I wanted to stop all this, I would call down the angels from heaven and they would come. But God, in the, in the hour of his son's greatest need, withholds. And it's not because, it's not because he's some uh, far-off father. It's because he loves you and me so much that he's willing to sacrifice the thing that it was most precious to him, his son, Jesus Christ, in order that we might have new life in him. Emil Brunner says that the cross reveals that God is infinite in love and holiness. God doesn't just cancel sin in the sense that he just says, okay, it's cool. No, he pays the price. This is why it's so funny to me when people picture God as this sort of old guy with a beard in heaven, and he's just waiting for me to mess up so he can strike me with a lightning bolt. He's already done that to Jesus. He's already done that. He's already punished sin as much as, as he possibly can in the person of his son. He's not waiting for you to mess up because he's already paid for it. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, because clearly we didn't, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It wasn't, it wasn't fair. It wasn't some great uh, you know, justice that was done. It was an injustice. But Christ died for us. He willingly went to the cross for us. But this wasn't a tragedy either. Uh, because we have resurrection. We stand in the light of what God has done. And so Colossians 2, 13-15. I'm just going to read this. You can write it down. Check it out later. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so Christ gives himself for us. So he's shown us his love through his creation. 
He's shown us his love in the fact that he came. Now he shows us the full extent of his love and be willing to lay down his life for us. The Son of God, the author of life, tastes death for us. Hebrews 1.3 says, After he had accomplished the purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so, okay, I just told you um, the gospel in like, you know, 25 minutes as, you know, as fast as we could. So you're like, okay, God loves us, great. Like, what do we do with all of this? Um, sometimes I think we try a little too hard to make things relevant or applicable, right? And so we think that, okay, so uh, how do I you know, become more joyful or more loving in this? Um, sometimes telling the whole story helps us to see how great God's love is for us, how, how patient he is with us, how abounding in love that he is. We've all chosen rebellion over a loving creator. We've all forgotten that we were made in the image of the one who who made the whole world. Um, He he came for all to live and to die. He came to announce his victory over sin and death on the cross. Christ's invitation is not to a better philosophy. It's not, hey, if you you live your life this way, you'll be happier, you'll be uh, smarter, better looking. It's not what that's about. Christ's invitation is, is, is opening your eyes to how the world really is. You know, at the end of the, the notebook, there's this another moment of, of clarity. And there's this moment of peace. And I won't spoil the end of the movie for you, if you haven't seen it, fellas. But there's this moment where there's remembrance. And she remembers who she is. And that's what God is trying to bring us to a point, is that we, we, we remember who we are. We remember that God made us. And against the backdrop of God's great love, our sin stands out so great. You see, so often people try to start with, okay, what's the gospel? How does it work? Well, I'm going to try to convince you how sinful you are, and then uh, we'll talk about how much God loves you. But I think sometimes against the backdrop of God's love, our sinfulness, our darkness, stands out so much more against the light. And so look at 1 John 3.16 as we kind of wrap up here. How do we respond? How do we apply this? How do we live in light of the resurrection? John's going to give us a little... 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. You skip ahead to verse 23. And this is the command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him. And he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. How do we respond? Obedience. Now you're not going to walk out of here with like three things to do today in order to love God more. But sometimes it's so helpful to tell the story, to see it in its entirety. And this is, you know, again, it was a, a glossing over. But if you feel like you're never good enough, if you feel like you're always coming in second place, if you feel like you're always second rate, God is saying, look, you're made in my image. Who I made you to be is who I want you to be. If you feel like you've, you've been abandoned, forgotten, Christ is saying, no, I, I'm the God who came for you. If you feel like there's always something getting in the way of you and God, then Christ is saying, look, I paid for that. And if you feel like you've kind of been a Christian for a while and you just don't really know what to do, First John is, is telling us to live in light of who he is, to obey him. Um, to, to let our lives be ordered by who he is. 
God's, God's grace is for all of us. His creation, His incarnation, His cross, His resurrection is for all of us. And sometimes it's just good to be reminded of who we are in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your love in our lives, God. We thank You that Your heart is for us, God. Lord, we thank You that You made us. We thank You that You didn't count us unworthy to, uh, to, to send Your Son, God. And so, Lord, we pray that we could just see your heart this morning. God, I pray that nobody would walk out of here without knowing at least the simple truth that God does, in fact, love them. God, but you didn't leave us the way we were. You sent your Son in order that we might see the fullness of grace and truth. So, God, help us to grow in you. Help your Holy Spirit to, to lead us, God. We pray that the words that um, you've spoken through your, through your Holy Bibles, God, would, would speak to us. Father, it's your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite the band, and we're just going to do things a little bit differently here this morning. Um, we have a, an opportunity to respond in worship uh, for what God has done for us. And so that's, that's kind of your invitation. If you, if you feel like you would like somebody to pray with you, uh, there'll be people over by the cross uh, that, are, that are in that spot. But you know what? There's people around you who will pray for you as well. Um, if, if you're willing to ask them, if you'd be so bold. Um, but if you just never knew that God loved you, I invite you to, to, to talk to somebody around you about that, either after the service or during the song. But we have an opportunity to respond to God's love, and that's, that's what worship is. It's not something that we sort of conjure up in our heart, but it's, it's seeing God's love for what it is and saying that we're going we're gonna to respond to that. And so uh, the words will be on the screen. I invite you guys to stand. Uh, we're going to sing uh, to our God here in this place, and then we'll go from there.